Complacent or vigilant? Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. I know there's more people here because I hear them. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because his eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. On the east side of Jerusalem, the land slopes steeply down from the city walls of Jerusalem, and it goes into a narrow valley which flows into the brook Kidron. On the other side, the valley rises up to the Mount of Olives. So you have this city here. One side it goes down into a, a, a valley. The other side goes up towards the mountains. And it is here in, these, in this mountain, on the Mount of Olives, specifically in a garden named Gethsemane, is where we find Jesus in the passage we just read. The word Gethsemane comes from a Hebrew-Aramaic word that most likely means olive press. And therefore, Gethsemane was probably a place among the olive trees on the Mount of Olives where a place of preparation of olive oil was located. So there was probably a clearing somewhere in here among all these olive trees where they set up an olive press, and this is where people would bring the olives. They would process olive oil at this point. And Jesus and his disciples often went there because it was in here in this grove of olive trees that Jesus found a quiet place where he could retreat from all the stress of the city and all the crowds. Having just celebrated Passover with the disciples in the upper room, Jesus led the group to his favorite spot one last time. In Gethsemane, we find Jesus going through a series of interactions. He's interacting with his innermost parts, his soul. He's interacting with his disciples, and he's also interacting with his Heavenly Father. And within himself, the feelings that he felt inside himself, Jesus was troubled. It says that he was overwhelmed with sorrow so deep it felt that it was going to kill him. My sorrow is overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. As a human being, like any other person who faced crucifixion, he dreaded the physical pain that awaited him. Now, before you get up and mentally check out on me this morning, stay with me and let me 
get to the point we're getting here. As a human being, like any other person that faced crucifixion, he dreaded the physical pain that awaited him. But unlike any other, he knew that on his cross he would bear the sins of the world. He knew that during that time he would feel an unprecedented forlornness and isolation from his heavenly father. He knew what was coming. Although the worst of the physical pain was yet to come, it was here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus fought his most difficult battle. And that was of making a decision to move forward. Jesus asked for the only help that was available to him. From his disciples, from his heavenly Father, whose plan he followed, from the disciples, especially the three closest to him, Peter, James, and John, he sought companionship and support. Remember these three, Peter, James, and John, were kind of an inner circle of the twelve. This was not the first time that he had called them away from the rest of the disciples for a specific reason. Uh, when he went to Jairus' house to raise his daughter from the dead, only Peter, James, and John accompanied him into the room. And then a few weeks ago, we saw that at the transfiguration, it was only Peter, James, and John that were there and witnessed that. And so now they've gone up to the Mount of Olives. They've headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've left the other disciples behind, and he's taken Peter, James, and John, his three closest associates, in there with him to pray. Why? Because he wanted their support. And some people would ask as far as the, the inner circle thing, was it fair for Jesus to favor this small group? Why not five or six or ten? Why only three? And I can't answer that question, but I would also ask you this. Why did Jesus only choose twelve? Why not fifteen? Why not twenty-five? It was a number that he chose. But here's one thing that we have to realize. The answer to the first question of why did he only choose three is to those whom Jesus gave, gave greater privilege, he also gave greater responsibility. Look at Luke 12 and 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has... For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And I believe this is the way that he looked at Peter, James, and John. Yes, I've entrusted you with a little more. I have allowed you in on a few more things, but I'm going to ask more of you. And did that happen? Yes. As a matter of fact, James would be the first of the twelve to be martyred. Peter would become the leader of the early church. And tradition says that John served the church longer than any other disciple, suffering even as an elder statesman. What Jesus, in essence, told his disciples as they went into the garden was, be, be here with me. Pray with me. Pray for me. I need you. But they failed him because they, they fell asleep. Finding no help from his disciples... Three separate times, Jesus returned to prayer, to, to, to pray to his Father that had sent him on this mission, seeking any, any way forward that didn't require going to the cross. 
You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think he was looking for a way out. Look what it says. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Look in verse 42. A second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. That's still a way of asking, is there any way we cannot have to do this? And then again in verse 44, so he left them and went away and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Three different times Jesus went back to pray, and each time it was, is there any way we don't have to do this? Is there any way I don't have to go through this crucifixion thing? The cup that Jesus referred to in this passage kind of gives us a, an image from the Old Testament of the cup of, of God's wrath. The humanity, all of us, we deserved to absorb God's righteous anger at sin, but instead one person chose to drink it all in. Remember in earlier passages, Jesus had asked James and John if they would be willing to drink from the cup that he was going to have to drink from. And they said, oh, sure. But then when it was time to actually stand up, they ran away. You see, Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew not only that they couldn't do it, he also knew that if they did, it would not be the sacrifice that was needed to pay for all the sins of mankind. So even if they would have said, yeah, we'll go to the cross and be crucified, it wouldn't have meant anything. It would have showed dedication, but it wouldn't have saved anyone. Not going to the cross was not in the plan that God had set in place for salvation. Instead of saying, okay, you don't have to go to the cross, through the prayers that Jesus went back and prayed the third time, and he prayed, it says, until his sweat became as drops of blood, another writer wrote. And instead, God gave him the power to persevere and to yield to whatever had to be done, to which Jesus replied in verse 42, he said, may your will be done. He finally brought that flesh, that humanity, under submission so he could say, Whatever I need to do, I'll do it. It was here in this place through prayer that Jesus was enabled with the determination to carry out the plan that was necessary. And some might say, well, what do you mean? Jesus had no choice in the matter. He had to go through with this. No, he didn't. If he had no choice in it and he had to go through with it, then why did he go back three times to see if there was a way that he could get another way to do this? There are many people that are non-Christians. Please stay with me just for a minute here. You might not agree with me yet. There are many people that are non-Christians in the world that struggle to accept the divinity of Jesus Christ. A lot of people. They think he was a good man, he was a prophet, you know, he was a good teacher, a great teacher, a wise man, but they really struggle to accept the divinity of Christ. On the other hand, there are a lot of Christians that resist 
accepting Jesus' humanity. Jesus no more wanted to die than any other human being. Well, it was his mission. He knew he was coming to do it, and he was, well, yeah, he did. And he knew what was coming, but he didn't want to do it. Father, if there's any way that, that, that we cannot do this, that you can take this cup that I'm going to have, all these things I'm going to have to do, if there's any way around that, let it be done. It's human nature. And see, a lot of times we don't want to really recognize that human nature that he had, that he was just as human and had all the traits of humanity as we do. Some would say, well, the sorrow he felt here was over being betrayed by Judas. He may have felt some pain from that at this point. But as a human being, he was also struggling with his fate that was to come. Let's look at this. It was man that sinned in the Garden of Eden, specifically Adam and Eve. It was them that brought this whole thing of sin on humankind because Adam and Eve were destined to live forever in their original state. They were immortal. But when they sinned, all of a sudden death became a part of the equation. And for that sin, there had to be a payment. And for years, under the law of Moses in the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed every year for that sin. And these animal sacrifices would not forgive the sin. All they did was take your sin, you would take your, your sheep or whatever you took to the priest, and he would offer up sacrifices, and your sin would not be forgiven. Instead, it would be rolled ahead till next year, and then you had to come back again and offer another sacrifice. There was no forgiveness of sin. It was a deferral. The only thing that would be accept, an acceptable payment for sin, stay with me here just a second. The only thing that would be an acceptable payment for sin would be the blood of a man who was without sin. You see, a, a normal man that had sinned and died would not be an acceptable sacrifice because he had sinned. It had to be one who had lived without sin and then would die. And Jesus was the only one that could do that. He was the first one to come that could do that, and he was the last one that ever would be that was needed. Without his humanity, the sacrifice would only be symbolic. Not a real sacrifice. If he was just a little robot God person down here, it wouldn't have meant anything. If submission to the Father was that easy, why did he have to go back three separate times? We have to be careful that we don't make Jesus into some divine robot to see him as a son of God. And a lot of people do that. They say, well, yeah, Jesus, he was on the earth, and, and you know, he went to the cross and everything, but he was God, so it was okay. It still hurt. When they drove the nails through his hands, it hurt him just as much if it was me or you. And if we take away that humanity of that, it makes it like it really doesn't matter. If we turn Jesus into like a superhero that we see on TV or something, you know, we grew up with Superman and, and they would shoot him with bullets and stuff and they'd bounce off and, 
And nothing can hurt him. And I think a lot of times we have tried to turn Jesus Christ into Superman. That people could do whatever they wanted to him and it wouldn't hurt him. You see, Superman wasn't human. He wasn't real. He was from Krypton. As a human being, he struggled. I believe that when he was a small child and, and out working in the, the shop with his father, Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph, who was a carpenter, and Joseph would probably say, Jesus, just, just back up a little bit. I'm trying to work here. Here, here's a hammer and a nail and a few pieces of wood. Go over there and play. It probably happened. He was a little boy. We, we forget he was a little boy. Now go over there and play. Here's a hammer and a nail and some pieces of wood. And Jesus would get over there with his dad's hammer, and he would start hammering away, and wham, he hit his thumb. It hurt. Oh, me. When he was betrayed by Judas, he felt that same hurt deep down inside, just as you and I would feel if somebody betrayed us. As a human, he felt hot when it was hot out. He felt cold when it was cold out. He felt hunger when he was hungry. And he felt the feeling of being tired after a long day. How do I know that? Because several places in the Scripture, it says that he often tried to withdraw from the crowds in order to rest. Oh, yeah, but he was God manifested. Yes, he was. But he was all human, too. As a human, he didn't want to have to die on a cross. You know why? Because he'd seen people die on the cross before. It wasn't, Jesus was not the first person to ever die on a cross. It happened all the time under the Romans. They would put people along the side of the road into the city of Jerusalem on these crosses, not big giant telephone crosses, but crosses that were low enough where you could look that person in the eye and spit on them and, and say things to them and slap them. And no doubt in his lifetime, he had walked down that road many times into the city and seen people dying on crosses and saw what they went through. And he knew that was his fate. As a human being, he didn't want to do that. But as the Son of God, he was able to obey the will of his Father, and allow his love for others to outweigh the need to protect himself. And as Jesus returned for the third time, he probably looked out over the Mount of Olives. Remember, he was up over the city. The city was down here, and it, this mount came up, and he's up here. And as he comes back the third time, he probably looks down in the city, and coming out of the gates, he saw a line of torches being carried by people coming out of the city, knowing full well that it was a group led by Judas coming to arrest him. His hour to be betrayed had come, and the powers of darkness were gathering against him, and as he returns to his disciples, he wakes them and says, it's almost time for me to be betrayed into the hands of my accusers. Get up, let's go. 
here comes my betrayer. Matthew 26, 47 through 50. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. See, Judas had told the religious leaders where to find Jesus. So why was it necessary for him to take them all the way there? Perhaps it was the darkness. They wanted to make sure they got the right guy. And maybe in the dark they were afraid that they would take the wrong person and Jesus would get away, and they didn't want that to happen. Another reason is they didn't know if Jesus would try to run. They didn't know if he would try to fight. So they wanted Judas, Judas to go to him and pick him out so they could grab him immediately after they got there. And Judas, who knew Jesus personally, promised that he would help him get their man. But as it turned out, Judas's presence wasn't even needed. Apparently, Jesus just stood there and waited for him. Picture this scenario. Later that night, one of the men from the crowd gets home, and he's describing the events of the evening to his wife. I really felt weird climbing up that hill. I've been up there many times, but this time something was different. This, this guy named Judas, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, led us right to him. We talked on the way up and we couldn't figure out why or what this Judas guy was doing. i got to tell you, though, I was ready for a fight. We would have beaten them all into submission if we needed to. And if that didn't work, we always had our swords. Of course, we knew they didn't have a chance. We had them outnumbered five to one. But when we approached him, they were not ready for a fight. Really, it looked as if they were just ready for a quiet evening in the garden. In fact, it looks just as, as if his followers had just woke up. When they saw what was happening, there was this one guy, I think his name was Peter. Strange guy. Anyway, he fought for a moment and then he ran off like the rest of them. Judas saw the Judas guy. Jesus saw this Judas guy with us. And he let him walk right up to him and greet him with the normal kiss like a good friend would do. In fact, it's strange. That's how Judas, Jesus greeted Judas. He said, friend, do what you came to do. You know, the authorities really want to kill this Jesus. I wonder why. 
He looked harmless enough to me. And centuries later, here we find ourselves still amazed at what Judas and the Jewish authorities were doing that night. A man who had never hurt anyone. A man who had loved unconditionally everyone he came in contact with. A man without sin. And if that part isn't enough of a shock, to many, Jesus' open, calm response shocks us even more. The fact that he just stood there. After he had been praying for who, who knows how long till his sweat became his blood to take this cup for me to where I don't have to go through with this. And then when the time came and his accusers were right there in front of him, he just stood there. In fact, he stood there as if he were just a, a mere observer. Or maybe more ironically, outnumbered, he stood there as if he were in charge. Kind of a, a director of this drama that was unfolding, rather than one that was about to suffer and die. Truly, no one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down in obedience to his Father's command. John 10, 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. I believe all the way up until now, Jesus could have still said, Not going to do it. Not going to do it. You see, when we realize that he had a choice, it should make us love him even more. When we think of him as someone who was sent, had no choice, was programmed to do this thing that he had to do, and had to follow through it regardless of how he felt, it would be easy for us sometimes to say, yeah, but he only did it because he had to. But the reality was he didn't. He did it because he loved us. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. An old song that says he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called more than that. He could have called angels down right there in the Garden of Gethsemane and these guys with clubs and swords and, and these angels would have just beat them down all the way back to Jerusalem. He could have called fire down from heaven and destroyed every one of them where they stood. He said, I'm not doing this. But he loved us enough. In spite of knowing what was going to happen, he went ahead and did it. And all of these things that were going on and what Jesus was going through, the anguish that he was feeling this night, he takes his disciples with him to pray and to support him. And all of these things that are going on, and they're none the wiser as to what's happening. They had fallen into this complacency of this mindset. Here we go again. We're going back up to the Gethsemane. Jesus wants to pray again. 
Let's go with him. And then they went up and they fell asleep as he went off to pray, not realizing what was happening. We too need to be vigilant and not become complacent in the hour that we live in. It's easy for us to too to do also. The thing about complacency is that even though we don't fall into complacency with malice in mind, the end result is usually the same. I read a news article this past week. A group of skiers went out skiing on this particularly difficult place. In fact, they climbed over barriers to get to the slopes to be someplace they weren't supposed to be. They were in their 20s, young skiers. And they got up there, and they're spending the day skiing. And on the way down, one of them didn't hear the rest of the guys shout avalanche. And it came down on top of him, and they dug his body out a couple days later. He was the only one that died. And some of the people in that area criticized that these were just young kids out there to, to have fun. It wasn't the case. The person that died was a certified avalanche search person. And someone quoted from this in this article that generally when these type of things happen, it's people who are the best trained because they get complacent. They're comfortable. They feel like, I've done this before. I've done this so many times. It's just one more time. And here's a guy that is trained specifically for those things, for rescue. And he dies in an avalanche. avalanche. Complacency. And I'll say this again. The thing about complacency is even though we don't do it with malice in mind, the end result is often the same. In the book of Luke, after Jesus had told a parable about a persistent widow, he raised this question in chapter 18, verse 8. I tell you this, he will, see, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And this is a question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? Speaking of complacency. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, faith on the earth? How we watch and wait for Jesus' return is very important. When he returns, will he find us being faithful servants, doing everything he has asked us to do? Will he find that we've been praying, that we've been reading our Bible, sharing the gospel, and becoming more and more like him every day? Or will he find us saying, I've heard that for years. Hadn't happened yet. I think I'm going to sit down here and take a nap. Just one more time in the garden. The disciples had that, they had that mindset. He could be a while. He usually goes away for a long time when he prays, so we're just going to take a nap. And how many people in our society today, even Christians, are saying to themselves, it's going to be a long time before he comes back. I'm not going to get real excited about this. 
I know I'm supposed to remain vigilant, but there's plenty of time. Will, be, will we be working for Him right up until the last moment, or will we have slacked off in our faithfulness a long time before He returns? We're in a time when there are all sorts of things being preached as gospel. Yet there's only one true gospel. We need to be vigilant as the time draw as time draws to an end that we are not being put to sleep by some type of a false doctrine. We need to study our Bibles. We need to pray. So that we know when someone is speaking the truth. You see, we can't believe everything that's said simply because the person called himself a man of God. Amen. The key to all of this, though, is does it line up with the Word? And if it doesn't, then stay away from it. But if we haven't studied the Word, how will we know the difference? We also need to remember that Satan will attack us when we least expect it. When we find ourselves becoming complacent and saying, well, it's just been so long, I've heard it preached all my life, that it was, could be tomorrow, it could be today, it could be in an hour, it could be next, in the next 60 seconds. But it hasn't happened, so. And that's the time that Satan will attack us and say, don't worry about it. And again, that is why it's so important for us to be vigilant as we see the end of all this approaching. We cannot afford to become complacent and comfortable and drift off to sleep just before Jesus returns. It would be a shame to live for Christ for 50 years And get tired at the end of 50 years and say, I think I'll just take a nap spiritually. Matthew 26, verse 41. Here are the words that Jesus told his disciples. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You know what? That still goes for us today. Watch and pray. You say, well, I don't see anything. Well, just keep watching and praying. We'll look at a recent poll. According to a 2008 Harrison Initiative survey, this is what people believe. In 2005, 90% of the people believed in God. In 2008, it was down to 80%. In 2005, 82% of the people that surveyed believed in heaven. In 2008, it was down to 73%. In 2005, 68% of the people believed in the devil, and in 2008, only 59%. In 2005, 69% of the people believed in hell, and in 2008, only 62%. Have we become complacent? Have we lost our, our vigilance? Sure we have. Because 
The number of people that believe in God has gone down. The number of people that believe in the devil has gone down. So they don't even think there's anything bad out there that's going to happen. It's okay. And that's just over a four-year period. It's obvious with polls like this that we as a nation are becoming complacent. It is the attitude, again, of I've heard it preached for years and it hasn't happened yet. Let me tell you that those things are real. The things that are talked about in this word are real. The things up here, belief in God, belief in heaven, belief in the devil, and belief in hell, it doesn't matter if only 10% of the people believe in it. They're still real. And another thing to remember is this. If these events that we've been talking about and we've taught about and we've preached about for all of these years, if they haven't happened yet, that just means it's, we're closer now than we were then. It's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. So just because they haven't happened doesn't mean they're not going to. Every day that passes that they haven't happened makes us one day closer to the promises. And that is all the more reason that we must keep watching and waiting because we do not know when the Lord will return for us. God bless you.